the, the theory really is sit on your hands first and let everything settle down and then take it from there. It's really trying to take away from that single engine mindset, I have to do something right now. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 69. Welcome back from wherever you are hanging out in the helicopter world. And thank you for being part of the show and taking the time out to learn a bit more about the industry and some of its background. This episode is really aimed especially at the listeners who have only flown single-engine machines or are curious about some of the considerations and terminology that come into play with multi-engine helicopters. Putting this together has been a, a great refresher for me personally as it's just over 10 years since I last flew anything uh, with a, a second engine. Thankfully, though, we've got someone a lot more experienced than me to help us cover the topic uh, this time around. Jim Vince is currently a pilot for the UK National Police Air Service, flying an Airbus H135 over in London and the surrounding areas. Now, Jim's got 25 years' experience in the helicopter world, and before that, he spent 10 years as an engineer in the New Zealand Army. His first helicopter role was as a reconnaissance pilot flying the uh, Kiowa in the Australian Army, and then he moved on to the Chinooks, where he was a troop commander, a chief instructor, and then the squadron commander. And he led an Australian Chinook deployment to Iraq. Jim then moved across to the UK and served with the RAF, first as an instructor on the AS350, the Squirrels, on the basic course, and then on the Bell 412 for the advanced course. And he ended up back on Chinooks and then got out of the services and did some consulting work before instructing on the, on the UK Army advanced course and their AS350 squirrels again and basically covering everything from you know formation to MVG to instrument flying uh, on all the advanced side of the, uh, the their training courses they go through. Hours-wise, just as an idea, so when you're listening to Jim as, as he talks, you know, Jim's sitting about 4,200 hours helicopters and another 1,100 on uh, fixed wing. So he's ATPL helicopter and aeroplane, a CIR on multi on fixed wing and, and helicopters, He's flying R22s, R44s, 206s, uh, squirrels, AS355s, which is a twin squirrel, the H135, Bell 412, Chinooks, and an Augusta 109. And that's just kind of like the highlights. And, you know, Jim's got a, a really mixed background of flying and instructing in both signal, uh, sorry, in singles and multi-engine types. And that's why I thought we would try and tackle this topic uh, today with Jim and provide a, an introduction to multi-engine operations and considerations. Folks, we've got uh, Jim Vince on the line with me today. So, g'day Jim, thanks very much for being able to come and join us. Oh, g'day Mick, um, thanks very much for having me. Brilliant, All right, we're going to be talking through a whole heap of considerations around uh, multi-engine uh, helicopter ops. So, a couple of the topics we're going to cover is multi-engine power application, how we actually get power to the transmission, go through the engine start process, look at throttle control, some of the emergencies, departures and arrivals, en route planning, and some of the CRM factors involved. So uh, very happy to have uh, you help to go through this, uh, Jim. Yeah, no worries. Thanks very much, mate. It's, it's, it's good. I'm quite looking forward to it, actually. 
Yeah, well, we've done a bit of a dry run through before. We've talked through a couple of things and, and worked out what we're going to talk about. So let's uh, let's jump into the first question we had off Facebook there was regarding, you know, how do we get the, the power from two engines into a transmission and the asymmetric side? So if one engine drops offline, uh, how does the, the other engine keep powering the, the transmission? Yeah, well, I think um, a lot of people probably think of the fixed wing asymmetric problem for having your your power systems at sort of distance from the center of gravity aircraft. With a helicopter, we don't necessarily have that, obviously. You've actually got uh, pretty much the, the power system going through the rotors in the system, uh, through the center of the aircraft anyway. So there isn't that problem of asymmetric th- um, thrust as, as such. But then you come back to, well, you've only got one engine or two engines providing power to the transmission. I think with helicopters, whether it be a single engine, R22, all the way up to large multi-engine aircraft, a power of application simply comes from the engines and is engaged into the transmissions through the spray clutch. And that spray clutch is simply a mechanism where if you're applying power to the transmission, it's engaging that transmission. And as the as the term clutch uh, alludes, um, if you take away that power, the clutch uh, disengages and then that power is not being applied. So at any time an engine is applying power you, through that clutch system, it's, it's applying power to your transmissions. So with regard to that then, um, depending on the type of aircraft, single engine, from that spray clutch on, it's how that power is then applied to uh, directly to uh, the transmission through a single engine or through a mixing transmission um, if it's multi-engine. If you're thinking about the R22 um, or the R44 or any Jet Ranger or Squirrel, it's pretty much straight through that uh, to the transmission, as I said. But for the multi ones, the the aircraft that I've flown, the the different sort of transmissions you'll have, um, the one that I've flown in particular was a 412, so the Twin Huey, you pretty much had a combining slash reduction transmission on the front of the two engines. So the Sprague clutch was integrated into that. So in terms of asymmetric thrust, you don't really get it because... Um, as I said, when one engine drops off, that, that spray clutch will disengage and then the remaining engine will pretty much drive that reduction um, transmission uh, into, uh, into the main tra- into, your, into your rotor transmission. Having flown Chinook as well, that's completely different where your engines are on the side. Not completely different. You still have your spray clutch coming from the engines into a combining transmission, which is in the middle of the aircraft. But then from then it goes forward to aft. So that in, in, in either case the spread clutch will drop off one engine and the remaining engine will pretty much just take up the load. And so there really isn't any asymmetric thrust in, a, in, in sort of multi-engine helicopters. Yeah, so basically when one line, one engine uh, has a power loss or it comes offline, it's then sitting isolated off to the side of the transmission and the other engine's basically powering, powering through to the transmission. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we spoke a bit about the, the black box magic that happens between the two engines. So normally you'll have a, a fuel control unit or a, a engine control unit, uh, which is basically, um, I guess, scheduling the fuel for each engine and, and trying to match the, the power. And, and again, without getting too much of details, you were sort of saying, especially in modern machines and FADEC, that black box sits between the, the two engines and they sort of talk to each other to make sure that both engines are outputting you know, roughly the same amount of power to the transmission. FADEC, they definitely do, um, and and as, as we discussed, it's it's definitely a black box. It's it's a little magic box that it will work. I mean, some of the key factors that go into that are obviously your ambient pressure, your engine um, temperatures and pressures at different parts of the system, and uh, obviously the rotor, uh, the rotor, you know, or rotor speed. So you've also got your in that sorry, you've got your rotor speed, your 
in one speed or your engine speed and your and your and your turbine speed for the power takeoff. So as as we discussed, lots of magic stuff that happens in there, and um, we're thankful for the engineers for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But yeah, not only is it, not only is the engine looking after itself, it's also aware of what the other engine is doing, or it's getting some kind of signal. Normally, even it's just a, a speed signal from the from the other engine uh, that gets mixed into uh, the fuel control. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that, that's there's lots of stuff going on there that I'm not really. I'm just happy it happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's talk about the the startup process. So again, going from a single engine, it's pretty straightforward. There's only the one thing to start and get going uh, into a multi engine. What are some of the you know the sequences and, and some of the other bits of kit that you might have in a, in a multi engine in, in terms of the process of of starting it up and, and getting it going? Um, well, I suppose it's the starter process in the first case. Most of the aircraft that I've flown, you have uh, electric starters, which uh, then turn into generators. So you've got just pretty much an electric start. Um, I understand from your background, you have the air pressure start. and But to get that air pressure, you'll need uh, auxiliary power unit, APU. And in my example, in the bigger aircraft, uh, we had an APU in the Chinook, which gave us the hydraulic power to start our engines. So that, that's the first first case, actually, is how your starters, your starter generators, actually come into action, whether it be electric, pneumatic, uh, or, or by hydraulics. From there, um, yeah, um, that, that probably answers your question at that point. Yeah, and in terms of the startup process, so we spoke about some of the, the, the ideas there. So the Black Hawk, you had enough air pressure up to about 25 degrees, depending on, on your uh, pressure altitude, where you can actually kick over both engines at the same time. But I don't remember ever doing that. We'd always start one engine and then the second engine. Uh, and, yeah, so if you just want to talk about your experiences in terms of startups. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So um, in terms of startups, Probably on the electrical start that we have um, that I've done on multi-engines for the 412 um, and the 355 and the 109, it's pretty straightforward. You just start one engine uh, and, and then the other because you only have enough power to do it. The 135 actually um, that I'm flying at the moment actually has sufficient power to start both engines at the same time. So for a quick start we, we use for, for police operations, you can actually do both engines at the same time. But um, I, t- I just tend to do one anyway. It's probably better on the aircraft and it's it's probably a lot safer for the, the minimal amount of time it takes to get the engines online. Some There are some philosophies out there uh, and I understand from, you know, from your background on on. The Black Hawk, we only start literally one engine, and that engine would be the only engine started first each day. The general philosophy I've had um, in my multi-engine background is, you know, on odd days you start the number one engine, on even days you start number two engine. There are pros and cons, and some there are some people who don't actually adhere to that theory because you still have a full start cycle to go through an engine because they're, you know, they are separate systems, albeit for a bit of a minimal drag through the transmission system that you could from one engine to the other, which may help you start, but effectively you're, you're going through a full start cycle. So it doesn't matter which one you start. But as I said, generally uh, multi-engine, the philosophy is um, number one on odd days and number two on even days. We spoke about the dual start too. So and again, just because people are coming into this uh, from a single engine background, that you're not saving a huge amount of time by trying to start both engines at once. And, and you were talking about too, that by going one at a time, you can give you full attention to that one startup. Uh, and you're yeah. not sort of trying to double your attention by, by monitoring both starts. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for, for the police operation, which is just what I'm into recently, is, you know, as, you, as you rightly said, we, you know, we want to get away as quickly as we can to, to support the police operation. But what I've found is it's just too distracting to have two engines starting at one time. And I can actually, the, the start sequence is so quick with the FADEC aircraft and, and controlled that, um, you know, I, I can pretty much get one online 
safely with, within 20 seconds um, with the NR or the rotor RPM increasing sufficiently to then actually go straight to the second engine. And to be honest, it's better on the battery as well if you're using a you know a battery start in the case that we are on the 135, EC135. So yeah, I think safety-wise, that extra 20 seconds just you know, do one at a time. But yeah. All right, the next one we're going to cover, Jim, is basically throttle locations and, and controls, the different sort of formats that they come in. Yeah, yeah. So from my experience, you've got... The, just the two general loca- uh, the two uh, locations for um, the throttles. The first, particularly for people coming from a single engine background, is on the collective. So when I first went into a 412 and saw two throttles on there, I thought it was a bit uh, daunting. But actually, it's quite simple once you get back, uh, once you get into the, the um, for my case, back into the multi-engine mindset. Um, yeah, basically, the forward throttle is the number one engine and the um, back throttle, the rear throttle, is the number two engine. And you can just do manual start on 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 those. On the one three five, it's exactly the same. Uh, you've got the forward throttle and the rear throttle, but we have a FADEC on the four one three. I'm sorry, on the one three five. So you pretty much have literally a wall switch. It looks like a wall switch uh, on the front. Uh, sorry, on your console, and you go from off to idle, and the engine starts, and you go through that start process. Then you start the second engine from start to idle, get that to idle, and take them both to flight um, at the same time. From And then you don't actually touch the throttles at all unless there's some sort of emergency um, operation. Whereas in the 412, your actual throttle manipulation was done to start the, we used, sorry, to, to start the engines. So that's the first uh, case where you actually have the throttles on the collective. The second case that I'm aware of, obviously, is the the throttle quadrant, which tends to be in the in the aircraft, uh, sorry, in the ceiling uh, or the upper consoles of the aircraft. So for the three five five, the screw twin screw, the three five five, um, or the one oh nine, or in the case of the schnook that I flew, the engine control levers um, were in the roof. Yeah, so those are the two locations that I'm aware of. And they have different names too. So different manufacturers will call these different levers and things different names. So you have PCL, so power control levers. And you have ECLs, so engine control levers. And it's actually, it just depends on, on what particular type that you're, you're seeing at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I understand their PCLs and the black hook that you flow, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess in startup, you know, you have idle and then you just go through the, the range to fly. And after that, it's it's all governed. Uh, and then when we get into the emergencies, you then may need to actually manually manipulate it. And the other thing we checked to before is, uh, pretty sure it's back in the Black Hawk Down story where they actually lose the tower and they're spinning in a control. The amount of torque and, and yaw on the airframe and the G-forces, they couldn't actually get up to reach the uh, the PCLs and be able to pull them back uh, just from where the location was. So I guess that's a factor in, in different uh, different locations in the cockpit. Yeah, exactly. The it's also uh, the other consideration that, that I have with it from from my experience on flying either throttle uh, throws on the collective or or on a separate quadrant is actually what you do for the non-normal situation. So for all the normal startup operation and get up to full flight, once it's up and running, then you don't touch them again because it's all fully governed. With the with the throttles on the collective, then you go into the emergency operation. So if you do have to you know, shut down, or say, for example, you have a governor malfunction and you have to manipulate a throttle, it's quite simple to do because your hands are full, particularly single, single pilot, your hands are full with the collective and the cyclic. You can simply then monitor the throttles using, uh, you know, using your hand as you would do and still manipulate the collective at the same time. When you have to go on to using 
PCLs or ECLs in the ceiling and you're trying to fly the aircraft as well, that's when the crew coordination comes into it. So, for example, if you have a governor malfunction and you have to manipulate one of the throttles outside the govern range, then if, the, if you can do that with the throttle on the collective, but when it comes up to the throttle quadrant and the ceiling, the non-handling pilot will have to manipulate that for you, which can get quite complicated. Um, and, and obviously, your emergency training will have to um, use the, uh, develop those crew resource um, procedures to make sure that you can take it to a safe and logical conclusion. So those are the two the two other considerations for having the, the locations and uh, of the different engine controls. Jim, that pretty much slides us in nice and easily there to emergency. So let's talk about, I guess, the different mindsets or the approaches to you know, engine phase in a single engine. It's, a, it's an immediate thing uh, versus in a multi-engine where we may want to approach it slightly different. Yeah, I mean, I've been quite fortunate to be an instructor on um, both single engine and multi engine aircraft. I mean, I've, I've got a, an R22 flight instructor rating too, but I've not actually taught on that. I'm just using that as a qualification for, for further advancement later on. But I've, yes, I've taught on single engine and multi engine, and the conception really is for single engine aircraft, if you do have a major power loss, then it's pretty much getting the aircraft into an autorotative profile fairly rapidly if you're an R22, for example, but not so much, obviously, if you're an F44 or a a Squirrel or or a Jet Ranger, say, for example. Within the multi-engine environment, though, because you do have the additional engine, the the theory really is sit on your hands first and let everything settle down and then take it from there. It's really trying to take away from that single-engine mindset, I have to do something right now, as opposed to, right, well, actually, I've got another engine, I've got additional systems, I can actually take my time. And if you simplify it down to for both cases, really what you're doing is you're achieving safe flight. Because something has happened out of the normal, you're in an emergency, and you need to safe, achieve safe flight. So for a single-engine, at high level, you know, you pretty much are entering auto rotation. In fact, at whatever high or low level, sorry, you are entering auto rotation. But for multi-engine, it's pretty much coming back to a safe single engine or OEI, uh, one engine and operative flight configuration so that you can then assess, diagnose the the, um, the situation and, and take it from there. So a lot a lot more slower time, slow amount of time, sorry, less amount of time required for that. What's the next the, key... What's the first, yeah, I was going to say, what's the first indication you start looking at then to, in terms of diagnosis? Uh, well, what I was about to say then is, is after achieving safe flight, then it's actually looking at are there any other dangerous dangerous indications because safe flight is one thing, but then are there any other dangerous indications that may affect that safe flight? So say, for example, you may have an engine failure, but are there any other dangerous indications? Well, that engine may be on fire so or it may just be chewing itself up. So really, the next thing is then to quickly assess are there any other dangerous indications? Once you've identified that there are no other danger indica- uh, dangerous indications, then it's pretty much a, a time of slowly looking through your key parameters, uh, flight instruments, which will help you. So for us, normally, it would tend to be NR in the helicopter to make sure you've got enough rotor speed, and then um, you're looking at any of the, you know, the power supply or the transmissions after that, depending on the, on the emergency that you've got. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking through, so it almost doesn't matter if you go from single engine to multi-engine, Apart from that initial reaction, your eyes are still going to go to, to rotor RPM and that's going to guide a lot of, of what you're going to do next. And obviously in a single engine, it's only ever going to be going one way uh, and that's your, you know, you're obviously you've trained that immediate reaction. Um, yeah. In both cases, I guess you, you're coming back to, to uh, rotor RPM or, or NR. 
Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So, and that's that safe flight consideration and 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 dangerous indications because you might achieve an order rotation, which is a fairly safe flight, but you, your your NR may be too high or too low, so you might rip the rotors off, or you might not be able to recover it in the case of a twenty two, for example, or in any craft if it's too low. So that dangerous indication is your NR. If you're in a multi, uh, and, and if we're just simply talking about major power loss here in a single engine or multi engine, if you do lose an engine um, and Oh, sorry, I'll just step back there. If if you have two engines, then and you have some change because it's not obviously just the indications inside; it's the feel of the aircraft and the noises that you hear as well to to give you an indication of, of what may be wrong. Then generally, the but the first indication, if you are going to look in, would be if you do have two engines, you'll have a torque for each one, and then you'll have a second indication for the the rotor RPM. So if your engines are operating normally, they'll be matched, and either the governors or the F or the FADAC will be keeping those engines matched and matched with the NR demands, uh, or sorry, power demands to, to, to keep your NR the same. So if you do have a power loss, for example, and you get a split in your needles, then the next indication really is you need to look at your NR. If you do have a governor runaway, then again you'll have a split in your torque and if you look at your NR then it'll give you the indication. So the, the philosophy that I had, which was drilled into me on Chinooks, which I, I'm still quite thankful for because it's seen me through all my multi-engine flying, is that if you do get a split of your of your torques, check your NR. And in this case, if your NR is is high, then it's the high engine that is the problem. You have a governor over, over speed. If you had a torque split, and you check your NR and your NR is low, then it's the low engine that's the problem. And then you can reassess that, whether it be an actual engine failure or a governor underspeed. All right. And I guess that's probably a cause of some accidents is is someone going for the wrong engine. And I guess the, the example there is you have, in that case where one engine is failing high, so it's, it's producing too much power and it's raising the, the NR up, the other engine's detected that, so it's basically backed its power off to try and bring the RPM back down. But in that situation, it looks like the the low engine, so the one with the low torque reading, it looks like it's the it's the power loss one. So I can, I can I'm sure that there is accidents out there where people have seen that, seen the low side engine. I think they've lost that one and not realizing that it's actually the, the error is on, on the on the high side engine. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so and that that comes back to that analysis of the NR. So that will pretty much tell you in that, in that example. Now, I've I've actually done this by accident myself because I didn't <laughs> assess the NR correctly. I actually um, the, the, I just had a governor wind down on one of the engines. Um, I didn't assess that NR, and I actually pulled off the low engine that actually contained the high engine because of the additional load initially. But then, because I was in that mindset. I thought then I was now operating with with uh, um, a power loss on one side, where actually the other one was too high. So when I started to bring that, my, my then subsequent actions to that were complicated because the high engine just kept on going up and up. Right. <laughs> um, and at which point I realised then that actually I had an overspeed on one engine as opposed to an, uh, an underspeed on the other. So it really goes back to that that you know basic philosophy of you know torque split, check NR, NR high, it's your high engine, NR low, it's your low engine. Right, so that's kind of talking about then like the obvious ones in terms of power loss. But as soon as we start having two engines, we have all these different systems. And, and again, there's still a number of single points of failure in a helicopter. So you want to then sort of take us down the track of the other scenarios that we can run into? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's um, as you said, a single point of failure can be in a single engine or a multi-engine as well. So if we start with uh, single engines, uh, for example, you know, literally almost uh, uh, to the day a year ago, I had a tail rotor chip and a squirrel uh, on an instructional sortie. At which, at which case, I don't necessarily want to lower the lever. For any transmission problems, the general philosophy is you maintain sort of a low power setting to keep drive to the to the power systems. And in this case as well, you want to, if it's a tail rotor, if you lose your tail rotor, you obviously want to keep a forward speed. So if you do have a loss of your tail rotor, then uh, you can actually let the vertical stabilizers or other parts of the aircraft um, maintain that um, longitudinal stability. So pretty much with a tail rotor chip, I, I pretty much landed straight away. We were into wind, setting up for an, ex- for an exercise anyway, but landed pretty much straight forward. So it wasn't a matter of dumping the, the lever, even in the case of a, of a single engine um, uh, single engine. Uh, aircraft. Harking back to my Jet Ranger days or my Kiowa days, flying out of Darwin, I also had a um, uh, a transmission caption um, as we we're just leaving the Darwin control zone. Um, so pretty much again, the fu- the fuzzbuster to get rid of the chip didn't work. So I pretty much landed as soon as I could straight away. So, but for a transmission problem in this case, you're really looking at lowering the power, but maintaining some semblance of power to the aircraft. So that the, the, if the aircraft does run dry or there is a problem with the transmission, there is enough power there to, to keep the, the transmission dry, um, driving until you actually get onto the ground. Um, the 135 that I'm flying at the moment actually can run dry for about 25 minutes. They, uh, but it's been bench tested to 25 minutes, so that, that will give you some amount of time so you, to get down. And that gives you an idea that actually it's not necessarily getting down for a transmission failure as soon as possible. It's actually getting down as soon as possible, but to a low power setting. So if you actually were to do a rotation with a transmission problem, you might actually have that transmission seize, which is really not what you want to do. Yeah, and the, and the other car, case uh, is, you know, major case is actually in terms of a fire. So for a single engine, you pretty much really want to get on the ground straight away and maybe shut the engine down to, to, to shut the fire, and then you are committed, obviously, to an auto-rotative approach. For multi-engine aircraft, as we talked about, with actually slowing down the emergency, even on fire for the 135 that I'm flying, for example, the emergency action is to initially shut the engine down, land as soon as possible, but then actually looking further to if the fire indication doesn't go out, then it's pretty much land immediately, which is the only land immediately we have apart from a double engine failure in the, in the 135. So you can therefore, your, your flight profile should be adjusted, you know, whether it's single engine or multi-engine, depending on how quickly you want to get down for that fire application. You just remind me of something there too. In in the one three fives, do you practice auto rotations in in flight, or is it just a simulator type thing? No, no, no. We, um, yeah, no, we we do. In fact, in all my multi training, so that's squirrel one hundred nine, schnook and one three five, we do auto rotations. Um, auto rotations to power termination or. Yeah. Yeah, into the hover. We don't do it to the ground necessarily. All right. Was there anything else we want to touch on there, Jim, about emergencies before we start talking about the differences for departures and arrivals? No, I think the I think just to, to just to recap that on whether it's single engine or multi engine, the first consideration is really achieving safe flight. So for single engine, and you have a major power loss, then it's pretty much entering auto rotation. But for a multi engine, um, what we taught, what I taught in the Royal Air Force over here, was chief safe flight indication. Uh, sorry, ch- chief safe flight configuration or say single engine uh, configuration or OEI one engine and operative. But then you check NR, check your height, your speed, and then that is your safe flight configuration for whatever you need to do, whether it be fire, transmission, or, or engine power loss, um, and then check any other dangerous indications after that. So achieve safe flight, check indications, dangerous indications. But, yeah, that's about it, mate. 
All right, so let's talk about departures, and I'll get you to talk through the, the whole uh, avoid curve uh, idea for single engines at the moment. But, uh, yeah, the reason what got me thinking about this is the very first time I saw a, a helicopter do this crazy departure where they back up vertically and then roll, and I had no idea what they are doing because, obviously, military flying, you just take off and, and go straight ahead and launch up over the trees. But, uh, yeah, so going from a single engine into a multi, let's uh, talk through some of those considerations in terms of arrivals and departures. Well, you know, as you as you've as you've mentioned, with a single engine, you have the avoid curve. So, pretty much adopting a profile that will keep you outside the the avoid curve to make a safe uh, approach or departure. With the multi-engine aircraft, particularly uh, in the environment that I work in, in the UK here, you're you're looking at adopting a profile that pretty much can either or as best can provide you a, if you have a major power loss a single engine uh, profile to a safe landing with hopefully no injury to the uh, crew, passengers, um, uh, or damage to the aircraft or property. So that's the difference in it. Pretty much if you're if you're in a, in a large airfield, and we can talk about the definitions of category of performance classes one, two, three, shortly after this, but just in gener- generically, if you're operating to and from an airfield, then you, know, you, you could quite considerably operate a normal, what would seem like a normal profile um, for the departure and the arrival for a single engine or multi-engine. However, in a multi-engine aircraft, when you are in a, and perhaps operating to a single helipad, the nominal dimensions over here are 15 metres by 15 metres, then you would adopt a, a profile that will enable you to adopt a single engine profile in the, in the event that you had a power loss prior to being able to fly away safely. So as you, as you said, as you saw, people were backing up. So for us uh, here uh, in the multi-engine environment, we actually back up, back up to that point where you can depart. At any point, if you have a major power loss, you can actually safely land the aircraft one engine straight back because all you're doing is resting a rate of climb and then adopting a single engine profile straight back to the helicopter pad again. And that helicopter pad could either be, you know, uh, a medical or a hospital pad, or it could be a, um, a heli deck on, on offshore operation. So when you're picking that angle to come back on, are you just trying to keep the, the landing zone in your chin bubble? At, like how are you sort of judging the, the height and the angle that, that you're coming back up on? Yeah, so a lot of that comes back down to the individual aircraft and also the certification by the relevant uh, approving authority. So for us, for the CAA here in the UK, for the 135, is quite straightforward you pretty much there you, you've got the chin bubble uh, at the front and for um, the helipad departure or the VTOL departure vertical takeoff departure you pretty much move back to get the, um, the center of the helipad just in the chin bubble just below where the cross beam comes and then you pretty much keep that and that just slowly drifts as you come back that position pretty much remains pretty constant just where the cross beam is between the chin bubble and the front windscreen is, uh, is where you, you actually maintain that flight angle all the way up. Interesting enough, when you do the night heli, heli departure, I quite like that because you pretty much fix your searchlight onto the helipad itself, and then because the, you've got the ideal angle, then you just have to keep the, yeah. uh, the searchlight aimed at the pad, and you're pretty much driving back up the beam. So at any particular time, if you have a power loss, up until that um, that point of uh, safe departure in the UK, we call it um, takeoff decision point, and we can talk about the different terminologies later. You know whether it be on, we do it now, but either flyaway speed or a safe single engine speed, but we call it as I said takeoff departure or TDP. Anything before that takeoff departure point, 
you can actually come back down and then you just drive down that light all the way back down uh, or, or by day, pretty much that profile that you, you just come straight back up from. All right, so you spoke about flyway, so let's jump into that now. And I guess my introduction to that or thinking about it is if single engine or multi-engine, you think of the normal power required curve. If you can picture that as we're talking, generally in a hover, it's going to be on the left-hand side of the graph, it's going to be high. And as you start to increase airspeed, it's going to start to drop down and to the right until you reach a minimum. And then as you go faster and faster, that curve is going to start coming back up and you'll start requiring more and more power. So for me, that flyway sort of works on that idea that we talk about um, F1. So if you have a, a clean aircraft and you're taking off in front, once you hit that airspeed, so it could be 15 knots, 20 knots, 25 knots, if you have an engine failure after that F1 speed, so after 20 knots, if, if that's the, the flyway for that configuration, then you can continue the takeoff and keep climbing out. If you have the engine failure before F1, then you're committed to basically arresting it and pulling it to a, a stop. So is that your kind of understanding of, of F1 or flyway? Yeah, that's exactly right. F1 flyway um, and, and also that, you know, the, the say single engine as we use in Chinooks or takeoff at departure point. No, sorry, takeoff decision point, sorry. So for us, you know, by definition, the takeoff decision point is that point is the last point where you can either land or, or fly away. All right, so then it gets a bit complicated. So we go from F1 or, or flyaway, uh, and we start introducing F2 and F3. So I can give the Blackhawk example, then if you want to give the Chinook example. So with a Blackhawk, you've got a couple of different configurations. You can obviously have an external load underneath the aircraft, or you could have the um, external fuel tanks, the jugs on the side. And both of them are, are jettisonable, so you can either punch off the, the load or punch off the or jettison the, the jugs. So if you were just doing an external load, uh, flyaway F1 would be obviously just you as an aircraft, and you'd have a second speed. F2 would be the speed where if, if you had an engine failure before F2, you would have to punch off the load and reduce the weight. If you had an engine failure after F2, you could then continue on the takeoff and maintain the load or the, uh, or the jugs, the external fuel tank. And F3 was if you were in the situation where you had external fuel tanks and, a, and an external load. Uh, so you'd need to be through F3 before you can keep everything on. If you had an engine failure before that, then you'd have to be punching something off. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's very, and we used, uh, obviously we were operating in the same uh, organisation in, in, in the Australian Army. So um, our, our, our philosophy and our terminology was exactly the same, um, F1, F2, F3. So for us, F1 is your single engine's flyaway speed pretty much. F2, and because we had the, the capability to, with three uh, hooks underneath, we could either have one, two, or three loads jettisonable. We pretty much only stuck to, to, to the same as what you did. It basically, simplistically, F2 was you could lose one load, or F3 you could lo- you'd have to lose both loads. But above F3, you could fly away, as you would do for the above F3 in the Blackhawk as well. Just on that though, uh, just to, to give some examples or some operational examples uh, that we had when I was in Iraq, we were flying between. Um, uh, in, in the Chinook squad, I took my Chinook squad into Iraq. We were flying between a couple of bases, and we had a transmission chip on one of the uh, on one of the transmissions, engine transmissions, and we had to shut that engine down. Um, we were above F1, so we 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 were we weren't we, we were heavy that we couldn't actually hover one engine, but we could fly quite adequately on one engine um, above F1, which was you know I think normally about it was about 15 knots, I think it was, but obviously. When we flew to the uh, alternate landing site, we had to come back 
So we pretty much, it was, a, it was a runway, so we pretty much maintained above F1 until we landed on the ground, so a running landing, um, and then we could bring our speed back below F1 because obviously we're on the ground, so we don't need to maintain it. So that was the first example above F1. The second example didn't happen to me, but it was while I was at, at, um, in Townsville on the Chinook where the aircraft could actually hover on, on one engine, but in, in, the, in the case when the guys actually, uh, were actually operating the aircraft, they had a, a, a truck, which was about five and a half tons from memory, um, and they were just sitting in the hover. So they could hover one, one engine, but they couldn't hover with this truck underneath. And it just so happened that they, have a, they had a governor underspeed on one of the engines, which meant that they didn't have enough performance to hold the truck off the ground. And they pretty much sank down, and the first thing they realized was they, as they sank down, they actually came back to the hover because once the truck was on the ground, they didn't need to be lifted anymore, and the aircraft pretty much came back up, and the slings were tight. And the first they realized, they were sitting over the truck in the hover. So that was an example of where they, they didn't have an F1 as such. They actually were safe single engine. They could operate single engine with, um, without the load, but with the load, they couldn't. And, and fortuitously, they could just um, uh, unhook the load and then come and land to, to the side after that was finished. The third example was actually when I was uh, at Townsville as well, where we, we actually didn't, uh, we actually had F2 and, we, and, and an F1. So we couldn't hover without the load and we couldn't hover with the load. So we didn't have safe single engine hover. We were going out on an exercise and we had the, um, now we were at five, um, five Aviation Regiment at the time, we had regiment headquarters inside and we had one of the headquarters Land Rovers and trailers underneath. So um, we had an, an engine chip on one of the engines. So we came back to Townsville, actually. Um, we were only a couple of miles outside outside the base. So we turned around, we came back. We, we bought the engine offline because if, if the engine did have any further problems, then we'd be above F2. But we wanted that engine because we needed it to make the approach and landing. So we pretty much brought it back um, offline to idle, and we could fly quite comfortably above F2. Um, if we lost that engine, what we would have to have done then is we would have had to have released the load prior to landing to then get us down below F2 but above F1. But then what we'd have to do, just as we did in Iraq, we'd have to land to a runway above F1 so, so that we could actually then um, uh, uh, let the passengers out. As it turned out, because we could then pull the engine back online, we could actually come to the hover, release the load on the ground, the, the, the rover and the trailer, then move to the side and then let the passengers out because we had, you know, we could actually hover with two engines but not with one. So, yeah, that was, that was just, just three um, quick operational examples to sort of explain the differences between F1, F2 and F3. No, sorry, F safe single, F1 and F2. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have enough time up to, to, to give an example for that, so we'll, we'll run with those ones. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay, let's touch on a couple of terms then. Again, because as soon as you start getting into stuff, there's all these new terms that pop up. Uh, so a couple of them you've kind of mentioned already. We'll go through them. So let's talk about uh, VTOS. Yeah, VTOS or V um, takeoff safety speed is pretty much defined over here uh, as that speed at which point you can actually achieve a rate of climb of 100 feet per minute with contingency power. So for the 135, for example, the takeoff safety speed is we can assure a rate of climb of 100 feet per minute um, with 2.5 minutes power, so contingency power for the engine. The reason they say that is, I believe, uh, 100 feet per minute is a normal classification, or sorry, certification parameter 
to give you a minimum amount of performance. You don't necessarily want to be able to maintain zero, you know, per feet rate of climb. You actually want a minimum rate of climb because if there's any other factors in there that could be uh, affecting your performance aircraft, you actually want to have a slight excess of, of power to fly away. So, yeah, takeoff safety speed is that point where you can actually maintain a minimum uh, rate of climb with and, and contingency power. Uh, in the CAA over here, uh, you know, it's going to depend on, on the aircraft, actually. So the approving authority will, um, when they go through the certification process, will define in working with the the, uh, the manufacturer what that takeoff safety speed is, depending on the conditions of the day and, and, and also the capabilities of the aircraft and the environment. So, yeah, takeoff safety speed is that. All right, and you just mentioned contingency power there, so let's let's dive in on that one and talk about uh, contingency power before we, we go on. Yeah, so you have generally what's considered max continuous power. So if you're looking at your engine instruments, you, you pretty much what you can continuously provide without overworking the engine. Once you, there are, and depending on the manufacturers, there are different other power settings that you can use. You can use a uh, five-minute power takeoff, and then you can go up to a 2.5-minute power takeoff, and then even on single engine, you can actually go to a transient power takeoff. So it really depends on the aircraft manufacturer, the capabilities of the the, the aircraft as well, and and what allowances the engineer is able to provide you to operate. So, for example, the 2.5 minutes means you can actually operate in that 2.5-minute power margin without too much extra damage to the aircraft by doing so. And as I said, with single engine, your transient, for example, with us, is 128% uh, of your normal power for up to 20 seconds. Or, um, you know, in the cases we talked about contingency power, they're 2.5 minutes, um, that, that power range. And normally, I guess, when you've got two engines running, each engine's got a, a bit more left in it in terms of what it can give. So when you get down to one engine, you can actually start demanding more power out of that remaining engine to, to make up a little bit for the for the lost one. Yeah, I think also it, it's also a matter of fact. Actually, you're in an engine, you're, you're in a, you're in an emergency situation, so you're you're willing to accept you know a bit more um, work on the engine, um, and you know that may require more maintenance and, and and what have you, but. You know, you're actually looking at the safety of the passengers and the, and the aircraft, so you're willing to take that maintenance risk yeah. um, uh, for there. But remember, too, also, single-engine aircraft will, will have the same, can have very similar um, sort of power limits. So even, in, you know, I remember flying the Jet Ranger, for example, and the Squirrel, you know, you've got continuous power on those as well. So generally, the green arc is your, is your max continuous power, and then above that, you'll have your amber or your yellow arc, which would be any contingency power you have there. And then obviously your red line is your maximum power that you can use. All right, rocking through the next one. So we've got VY. Yeah, VY, um, uh, generally, uh, yeah, it's considered the best rate of climb speed, which pretty much gives you, you know, the highest gain in altitude over, over a period of time. So VY, during your departures and for your arrivals for that matter, is the rate of climb that you want to, uh, sorry, the speed that you want to achieve to get your best rate of climb um, to a safe altitude. So if you're doing a departure um, and you had a power loss, say, for example, after your flyaway or your TDP, you could come back to your, your best rate of climb and then that would get you to your safety altitude or to a flight, uh, you know, to, to be able to achieve a safe flight configuration, you know, with um, the, the right NR and at a heightened speed so that you can then assess and then um, 
come up with your intentions to what you're going to do from there, whether you know, be land uh, where you're from or where you might have to go somewhere else where there's a larger area to land. And we've shown about this before we hit record too, but it's the same speed whether you're one engine or two engine because I was getting a little bit confused initially when I had the uh, the VYSE, which is more of an aeroplane asymmetric type thing. But for a helicopter, it's it's just the, the one speed. Yeah, exactly. It does come back to that asymmetric. And we just have to be a little bit careful when we talk about multi-engine and fixed wing as well because it's really only when you get asymmetric thrust in, in a fixed wing uh, as opposed to a central uh, a, a center line thrust, say for example, a jet engine, sorry, a, 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 a fighter which has center thrust, they don't actually have asymmetric problem as such, even though they have two engines. But it's probably the same from a, from a jet engine to a helicopter. The fact that it is there is no real asymmetrics when you have a have one engine or two. You actually your best rate of climb is your best rate of climb, whether it's one engine or two rate of engines, because it's more to do with the rotor systems and the the profile drag, the induced drag, um, et cetera. All right, the yeah. next one we've got there, uh, Jimmy, is Category A. So I don't know if that talks about types of you know, performance or types of the actual, you, you talk about departure being Category A? Yeah, so in terms of certification requirements of the aircraft, with the approving authority, so for us in here, it can either be the Civil Aviation Authority or the European Safety Authority, EASA. Uh, you, either got, you either have Category A or Category B. Simplistically, um, Category A, you're, you're looking at what we call Performance Class 1 or Performance Class 2, and then Category B, you're looking at Performance Class 3. In terms of Performance Class 1 or 2 for multi-engine aircrafts, uh, Performance Class 1 means that at any point during the departure or arrival, if you have uh, a, a power loss or a critical power unit failure, the aircraft is able to land safely particularly you know, during the, the, the critical stages of the departure or, or arrival. If, uh, for a performance class two, if you do have a critical, uh, a critical power unit failure during the departure or landing, then you may actually have to um, have a forced landing. So you don't actually have the performance to do a single engine approach when you're before that, that uh, critical point during the departure or the arrival. Oh, sorry, during the departure and after that uh, point in the arrival. For a class three, it's pretty much single engine, but this applies to multi-engine as well. Pretty much at any time, if you have a power loss of the critical unit or, or the major of the major power unit, then you are committed to a forced landing. So those are the key differences. One is that you can do a safe landing in the event of an engine failure. Two, you may have to do a forced landing, um, class two, and then for class three is you will be committed to um, uh, to a forced landing. Okay, great. Because, yeah, you start getting into multi-engine, there's all these different terms that start to, to come up. So it's just a very quick exposure to them. So we've talked yeah, about okay. the you know, departures and arrivals. Let's get into the some of the en-route uh, considerations now. Yeah, okay. So for en-route, for single-engine, if you have a, a major emergency, virtually uh, you're really – and as you're taught from the basic, both fixed-wing and, and, and rotary-wing flying, is, is you're pretty much looking for a safe place to land. So that's your on-route considerations as a safe point of landing because your major power, power unit has, has, um, has had a major power loss or, or has completely lost itself. In terms of multi-engine, you may be able to fly safe single engine if you have a major power loss or you have to shut an engine down for a fire. So if you're flying along, particularly in a remote area of Australia or over water, in the case of, a, um, uh, of offshore operations, if you have a major power loss or an engine failure, 
and you shut the engine down or the engine is lost, you can pretty much maintain your altitude. Now, if you can't maintain that altitude, for example, flying over Kosciuszko or the, or the Snowies, you don't have the power to do that, then uh, you have what's called a drift down altitude to which basically is the altitude that you your engine is classified, is capable of dropping down to to maintain. So effectively, you don't have the power to maintain safe flight at 9,000 feet, for example, over the snowies, but you're, you have sufficient power um, at a lower altitude, say five, 6,000 feet, and that's your drift down altitude. So the aircraft, you won't have any choice, actually. <laughs> you'll, you'll be able to calculate it based on the, on the performance um, information given you by the manufacturer, but you can then drift down to, um, to that altitude uh, and then find somewhere else as an alternate landing site. For the drift down as well, I remember my, this was particularly relevant to instrument flight, but it can happen, you know, it happened to us in Papua New Guinea as well when we were doing food relief up there because we were quite limited to power due to the high density altitude with the temperatures and altitudes we're operating at. With the drift down, if you, if you do have a drift down altitude that's below your safety altitude or below your maximum terrain height, then you pretty much need a plan to where you're going to drift down to because obviously you won't drift straight down. You'll have a, a rate of descent, but a controlled rate of descent down to drift down. But as long as you've got a plan to uh, to enact, whenever you if you do have this major power loss, then you actually know whether, where you're going to drift down to what, either side of the range or where you can actually clear that terrain. The other, other considerations there really get us into the point of no return or the critical the critical point planning so in simplistic terms point of no, no return is um the point which you know for example if you're going offshore or to a remote area there you you meet that point and you, you can't return back to your base and the consideration there people talk about headwind or tailwind um, the basic principle in terms of that is that at any time you have uh, a headwind or a tailwind for a point of no return, then the basic principle is that you will always spend longer in the slower flight consideration. Therefore, your point of no return, whether a tailwind or headwind, will always come back to your departure point. When we're looking at critical point planning, that is when you actually can make it to either end, is actually at what point do you continue or do you return back? And that's going to depend on the performance of the day, the aircraft, the certification, and the wind as well, for that matter, because you will be spending more time in, excuse me, into a headwind as opposed to, obviously, with a tailwind. But you'll have to look at the performance uh, of the aircraft and, and then your fuel flow based on your best uh, range speed. We were going to talk a little bit about fuel flow there too. I think that's where we're going to slot this in is there's a couple of uh, stories out there of, of crews uh, and the one I'm thinking of is a, a Sea King trying to get back to the ship on low fuel and they've actually made a decision to bring one engine uh, offline uh, to try and extend their fuel uh, that much longer to, to give them a bit more flying time. So uh, do you want to drop that in there? I don't know if you've got any stories. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, no, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly yeah, what we were talking about. So your the way you explained it was a little bit better, but for my for my understanding of it is that, and and you can mention uh, your perspective on it um, in a second. Um, but for my understanding of it, with with two engines, effectively, your there is a base amount of uh, power that is required for both engines, and if you shut one down, the ma- the minimal amount of increase of demand on the on the on the remaining engine is less than 
the that's required for the minimum amount of demand of two engines. That was the principle that I was taught pretty much in Chinooks. So for Chinooks, if we had to shut an engine down to extend our range, uh, we actually increased our speed, and our best range speed, I think, from memory, was about 140 knots with one engine, and that would give us our max our max range configuration if we needed to extend for any reason, um, which is quite good. If you lose an engine, you've actually got a lot more fuel to do stuff. But um, I think you mentioned something about the power efficiency as well. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the way it works, and I guess before I talk about that, you know, I guess this starts coming down to risk management of – you know, you're giving up that redundancy in order to uh, to get that other advantage in terms of extending the range. So any particular situation is going to come down to that, that risk management, definitely <laughs> not suggesting you go fly around on one engine. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, my understanding, if you think of even uh, like a, a gas-powered or a gas turbine-powered uh, power station, they want to be running that thing flat out because it's a bit of a uh, – you know, a logarithmic curve type thing. The, the faster or the harder you run the turbine, the more efficient it is in terms of power per amount of fuel. And if you've got two engines which are, are working at, say, 80%, that's not going to be as effective or as, as fuel efficient as if you've got one engine running at a, at a higher percentage. That's the, the way I understand it. So the advantage you get is by taking the, the second engine back, uh, you're running the one turbine harder, uh, and it's going to be running higher up that, that curve and, and getting better fuel efficiency rather than having two engines working at a lower rate and, and being less fuel efficient. Yeah, so no, that, like, that's exactly... There could be a flight test yeah, engineer yeah. out there who can uh, <laughs> give us the exact answer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think it really comes back down to the difference between the um, sort of uh, normal combustion engine as opposed to, uh, oh, sorry, the auto cycle combustion engine versus the, the continuous cycle of, uh, of a turbine engine is that, yeah, that, that critical power range is actually quite high up in you know between the 90s to the 105 percent it's probably the optimal power on there but as you mentioned better on, on uh, to have the engine operating at a higher power rate because of the efficiency of that fuel for that type of engine so yeah that's right um the other consideration there um was and that i've that i've that i came across when i went on to the 412 so you're talking there pretty much about shutting one engine down as one option to uh, extending your range um the other option that I've actually used was actually to reducing your your rotor RPM or your NR. So what that happens for so, so the effect of that actually you for a given power setting lowering your NR and as we went uh, in the four one two we lowered it from ninety uh, sorry from one hundred percent to uh, ninety seven to ninety eight percent you actually get for a set power setting a higher efficiency in your rotor system. So. I actually had to use this one time. I was taking an aircraft. It was a 412 Mark II down to an air show at Biggin Hill in London from where I was based up in the Midlands. Um, we got delayed for our departure for weather out of the Midlands. We we tried one, one departure and we had to turn back. And then we tried again. We didn't have time to refuel. There was a break in the weather, so we didn't have time to refuel. But we were able to get out of the weather, a bit of dodging around and a bit of low-level flying. We were able to get around that, but then we pretty much hit clear air, and the problem was then that we had to get to Biggin Hill for the air show before the airfield closed at 9 o'clock at night. It was in the summer, so it was still daylight, so the night was not a consideration. Night, night flying was not a consideration, but we were on min fuel, so we didn't want to slow down, which we could have done to give us a better fuel economy, but because we wanted to keep our same speed, I pretty much beat down on the NR to, to um, 97% to give us that better rotor speed. We actually happened to make it in time, and 
and with enough fuel, thank God. So it was all right. But yeah, that's the other consideration, either shutting one engine down or decreasing. So shutting one engine down for better fuel economy or decreasing your NR for better rotor efficiency and therefore better economy. Yeah, and I guess always refer to your, your flight manual. I have, I've definitely heard <laughs> that before, and I think there's there's Nick Lapos. I think he's got a, a thread out there somewhere where he talks about that in the S76, about dropping the, the RPM a bit, and he has some more technical details. But, yeah, I, I just don't uh, <laughs> don't say, oh, I heard this thing on this podcast. Let's, let's try this out today. Uh, I'll check your yeah. flight manual on that, on that one. I love the disclosures, mate. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just see someone taking that. Hey, let's, let's go try this thing. Okay, let's, let's jump try, in. Try, try and... Yeah, try and beat down the NR on the R22 and see how that works for you. <laughs> yeah, wait for the uh, instructor and see what they say. Exactly. Let's uh, hit our last point then, is talking about some of the considerations then for, for CRM uh, moving into into multi-engines. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think this is a, is a good way to wrap up this discussion because we've talked about a lot of the considerations for throttle manipulation, uh, emergencies, and then manipulation of the controls uh, in the event of those emergencies and what you're going to do and even I suppose for departures and arrivals but uh, critically uh, the, you know the, the, the key the key battle cry for any manipulation of, of um, any major systems is identify confirm select which we use in the past but identify confirm select if you're looking at a single engine um, single crew you're pretty much doing it yourself but even then you should be identifying confirming and selecting because even a single crew you can you can misidentify the critical um, element that you're, you're trying to manipulate and in terms of critical elements actually that we're trying to manipulate on the Chinooks for us classically it was in fact any multi-engine I suppose depending on what it is but for us in the, in the Chinooks it was any time that we were going to be moving the engine control levers fire handles, the generators, the hydraulics, and to a certain extent, um, the fuel as well, you then need to identify, confirm, select. Now, I suppose the assumptions made that a single engine, you're going to be single crew, uh, multi-engine, you're going to be multi-crew. That's not necessarily the case. I suppose I'm in a unique situation of being the police where I'm actually a single pilot and I therefore about multi-engine um, and I have, a, I have technically passengers, but the police officers that I carry are actually not crew. I'm actually operating single crew in a multi-engine aircraft. More, more to keep it quite simple, talking about it with the CRM, and you've got multi multi-engine aircraft. You, you're you're now actually talking about additional systems, and therefore selecting or deselecting one has an impact on the other. Now, the classic uh, example that I recall when I was going through my multi initial multi-engine training was that in the case of somebody identifying. Well, they, they, there was a there was a fire on one engine. The crew, the non-handling crew, actually, or non-handling pilot, sorry, identified the wrong engine and then pulled that engine. So now they're in a situation where they have got a fire on number one engine, for example, but number two has just been shut down, and you're in a world of hurt. So in terms of that CRM, you're looking at identifying the select. The second person says, "I confirm that you have selected that critical um, component." And then the initiating person then says, right, selecting. And there's that two-way crew communication for identify, confirm, select. And as I said, for us, it was primarily on engine control levels, fire handles, generators, hydraulics, and, 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 and fuel. Regardless, even when you're single crew, you should still do that. And I still do that when I'm operating single crew because it is so easy to hit the wrong, the, the wrong uh, switch. And I, uh, a classic example uh, for that, in a squirrel, for example, um, when I was operating the windscreen wipers, uh, I remember one time in particular, 
I actually just turned off the landing light, which was the switch below. So even in a single crew, that identify, confirm, select is, is, a, is a really good battle cry to stick to. Well, even in the 22, you know, you've got the uh, the trim you can pull up occasionally and it's sort of just in front of the cyclic there. And, uh, you know, it's not – I mean, nothing's miles apart than the R22 copy anyway, but you've then got the mixture control uh, fairly close by as well. So whenever you're reaching for, for anything, um, yeah, any of those sorts of controls, it's always a, a good habit. Yeah, that's a really good example actually, Matt, because that's why, why we, we've got the um, the guard on the on the mixture control because, yeah, if you take off the trim, as you said, you could easily take off the mixture – Oh, sorry, pull up the trim, actually, sorry, and you could easily pick up, the, pull up the mixture and, and shut the engine down. I think that's, look, that's been awesome for me because, again, I haven't flown multi-engine for <laughs> for years and years. So I've had, uh, you know, a lot of fun putting this together and, and going through and, and getting my head back around it all. And I think for someone who's come from a, you know, a single-engine world at the moment and looking to move into to multi, I think that's a really good primer for someone who's listening there to, to, to get their head around things. So, Jim, thank you very much for, for taking us through all that. No, no problems, Mick. I've really enjoyed it, actually. And it's always good to to go back over these things just to reconfirm in your own mind, especially because I've only been flying the police for a couple of months. But um, these basic principles that we stick to is, is quite good to refresh them every now and then. But yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed today too. So thanks very much for the uh, for the offer. Thanks, mate. Thanks to Ivana Gorlin for putting me in touch with Jim, and uh, I hope you agree. Like it was really interesting covering some of those things. You look up Jim on LinkedIn under Jim Vince, that's V-I-N-C-E, and get some more details there on his background and the other things that he's been involved in. And he's also got a really good example of a LinkedIn profile for a, you know an aviation professional, so it's well worth checking out and connecting with Jim there. If you've got any feedback on the format of this episode, if you have questions about something that we covered or if there was anything we got wrong or could have explained better, then please do leave a comment on the, the blog for this episode at rotarywingshow.com so that Jim and I can include you in that conversation. There are several photos uh, posted up there too from Jim's career covering you know, Australian schnook work, some of the stuff he's done in the, in the UK and the different types he's flown when he was doing the instructing. So you can see those on the blog. And while you're there, you can also look back through obviously all the other past episodes and see some of the photos that you may not have seen if you've been listening just purely to the audio version and on iTunes. If this is your first time finding the show, or if you haven't got around to it yet, then have a think about signing up through or subscribing on iTunes uh, or Stitcher, uh, the other sort of platforms there. It's the easiest way to uh, get access to the episodes as they, they get pushed out. Look, if you're interested in throwing money towards the bandwidth costs and helping me out, then there is a page up on Patreon for Rotary Wing Show where you can do that, or you can go through the website at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. And I feel really bad asking each time that these episodes go out, but there's more and more people downloading the episodes and then going back through the uh, the back catalogue, which is getting bigger these days. Uh, so, yeah, look, it, anyone who's currently uh, helping out in that way, uh, thank you so much. I really uh, do appreciate the help. You can get uh, in contact direct with me or reach me at uh, feedback at rotarywingshow.com and you can keep up with the news sort of in between the episodes on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rotarywingshow where I try and post a few things in between as I get around and about. Other things I've been up to at this end in the last month, I've actually sat a, a CASTRA exam on the principles of instruction, and that was pretty interesting. That's the first CASTRA exam I've done in quite a long time. And I had to get the exam done as I'd been, up until now, grandfathered in under previous legislation uh, for instructing. 
and that exemption was about to, to run out at the end of the month and that would have you know essentially voided my instructor rating. So then, yeah, they, with less than a week after I actually sat the exam, CASA then went and scrapped the requirement for it. So in the end, I probably didn't have to do it. But uh, at least I've got that ticked up and if I look on the bright side. This week, I've downloaded the new Cabri G2 add-on aircraft for X-Plane, uh, the flight sim. It's uh, just been released. And over the next couple of days, I'll be going through. I've started already and in, in, in learning the checks for that and uh, trying it out in the virtual reality uh, sim setup that I'm running here at home. Uh, so it should be a bit of fun. And again, if you're on the fence about trying the virtual reality gear out there, I just can't recommend it enough. If I suddenly had to learn to fly all over again, then uh, having a home VR setup would be like a day one purchase for me. It's just no questions asked. It's, it's that good. Uh, and, and for the cost of it compared to with a, a full flight sim. So, yeah, I can't recommend it. And if you haven't tried the virtual reality flight sims, you've got to get out there and give that a go. This Monday night coming, I'll be helping to host a helicopter theory and pizza night here in the uh, AeroPower hangar in uh, Brisbane. plan is to go through, with people who turn up, the helicopter pilot's model code of conduct, which you can find online. And it might be a, a future topic we cover here on the podcast as well and uh, basically go through what... Uh, I haven't got the full story about who's created, but it's basically like a working group and it's linked off the FAA website and essentially goes through what you know professional helicopter pilots should be doing in terms of behaviours and uh, how we approach our, our flying. We'll also field any theory questions that people bring in uh, with the whole idea we're going to be doing that while we uh, chat in on, on pizza for uh, dinner. I'll have the, uh, the VR sim there as well. My instructor renewal is coming due the end of November this year. And the plan is I'm going to be going for the uh, grade one upgrade. So the next few weeks, I'll be starting to ramp up the study for that. If you've got any tips for me there, then uh, please do send them in. I'm uh, very much open to advice and and tips uh, in terms of going for a a grade one upgrade for the instructor rating. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed finding out about or perhaps uh, refreshing some of the multi-engine considerations. So a big thanks to Jim again for his help there. And a big thank you to to you again as well for for listening in. And I'm looking forward to catching up in the next one.